Good morning, church. Good morning. Can I see a smile on? Okay, that's nice. Um, <clears throat> it's a joy to be for me to be here this morning. And uh, if you look around, you will see empty chairs. We are generally a church that is pretty full, but we see empty chairs, and that's not because the rapture has happened, but that's because it's a long weekend, and people are traveling. And we are the remaining ones. We are the remnant. But guess what? We have a feast before us today, right? And many of you might be thinking about the biryani that we're going to have, but I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about Ephesians 2 that we are going to be looking at this morning. So please tune your minds. We'll get to the biryani. But before we get to the biryani, please tune your minds and open your Bibles to Ephesians 2. And thank you, Abhishek, for uh, reading for us from verse 11 to 22. But I recognize my weakness um, and my unworthiness to preach. And so let's look to the Lord once again to say a word of prayer. Our Father, we pray that what we know not, you will teach us. What we have not, that you will give us. And what we are not, please make us. In Jesus' name we pray. Okay, I hope you have turned your Bibles to Ephesians 2. We are in that chapter, chapter 2. And last week... Paul was telling us what happened to us when we became Christians. What happened to us when we became Christians. We saw in the first 10 verses that once we were dead, not physically dead, but spiritually dead, but now we are alive. And today we come to verse 11, and we will go until verse 22, which is the end of the chapter, and we are going to see we are going to see three main parts of this passage which outlines this passage three main parts verse 11 and 12 talk about separation reminding us who we are verse 13 to 18 talk about reconciliation reminding us what Christ has done and verse 19 to 22 will be talking about unification, reminding, reminding us who we are now. Who we were, what Christ has done, and who we are now. And before we dive in into the passage, it is critical for us to remember a few things that are contextually very important until we reach this passage for us today. Now, if you were here when we were doing when we were going through the book of Acts in Acts 19 Paul spent almost 3 years in Ephesus and for two or more of you, those years he taught daily in one of the city lecture halls and one of the greek manuscripts on acts adds that Paul would have done this teaching from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. which was the hottest part of the day and which was the time when people were taking a nap resting from their work 
So five hours every day for six days a week and for two years. You know how many hours that is in total? Five hours, six days a week for two years or more. But approximately, it's about, it's more than 3,100 hours. That's a lot of consistent teaching by Paul and consistent learning by those at Ephesus who attended. And here, Paul is writing to the Christian believers in Ephesus a few years later, telling them what's involved in, be in being a Christian and how they should be living as Christians. Now, I think it's safe for us to believe that there would have been some of them who had become Christians when Paul was there, but there would have been some of them who would have become Christians after Paul left too. And to those who were there, they would have known what Paul was going to write about because they must have heard it several times earlier. But here's the thing, and please listen keenly. There is a big difference between hearing particular truths and understanding and living by those very truths. There is a big difference between hearing particular truths and understanding and living by those particular truths. And a good teacher keeps on repeating the truths until they have really sunk in. But why is it necessary to repeat the same truths? Let me take you to, say, uh, to 2 Peter 1, verse 12 to 15, and the verse is on the, uh, uh, on the screen. It says, so I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now are, have. <clears throat> I think it's right to refresh your memory as long as I live in this tent of this body. And he says, I will make every effort to see it after my departure that you will always be able to remember these things. So it's really important that we keep on hearing the truths of the gospel until they really become part of us, until they become really ingrained in us. And this is why, though many of us come from church background and have heard the gospel many times, we still remind each other of these gospel truths, just like Paul reminds the church at Ephesus. In the first chapter of Ephesians that we looked at in the last few weeks, Paul has reminded these believers of the amazing grace of God. This amazing grace that's lavished upon them, sorry, that's lavished upon them with so many blessings. God has blessed them with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And they should not get tired of hearing that time and again. And we should not get tired of hearing that time and again. In the second chapter, Paul reminds them of the tremendous transformation that took place when they became Christian believers. Before they heard and responded to this gospel. They say before, uh, he says before they responded to the gospel in verse 1, they were dead in their transgressions and sins. Some, some uh, translation says dead in their trespasses and sins. And well, of course, and Bella reminded us, uh, us this in, uh, during, during cell group, that 
it's not that they were physically dead. They were physically alive. They were breathing and they were moving around. But as far as their relationship with God was concerned, they were dead as a stone. Are stones alive? They were dead as a stone. But then he tells us, simply out of his great love for them, not because they deserved it, but simply out of his great love for them, God did something. He made them alive in Christ. How did he do that? He forgave their sins through Jesus' death on the cross. He restored them into a living relationship with God. And as a result, Paul said, they are God's workmanship. Because God has done all this that he talks about from verse 1 to 9, verse 10, he says, so you are God's workmanship created to do good works that God prepared beforehand for you to do so that, you, so that they may walk in it. Now, that of, cl- of course applied to all the Christians there at Ephesus and it applies to all of us who are believers, who are Christians today. And before we came, we became Christians, we too were dead in our sins. Because we became Christians by God in His grace, making us alive in Christ, incorporating us into union with Christ, forgiving us and accepting us. And brothers and sisters, we too are God's workmanship, God's work of art to do good deeds that God prepared beforehand for us to do and to walk by it. If you are a believer hearing this today, can you take a moment and remind yourself that you are God's workmanship? He's not just saved you and left you, but you are God's workmanship. And with that, we come to the second half of the chapter, which is the, cha- which is the passage for us this morning. Now, again, like I reminded you earlier, Paul is a great teacher, and he repeats himself. He says the same thing in this passage, but in a slightly different way. And before we look at it in that detail, we need to realize that the world in those days were divided into two groups of people. There were the Jews, who were God's God's chosen people, They had all their traditions and they had all their Old Testament scriptures. They had their temple there in Jerusalem. And in most places in the Roman Empire, they had their meeting places called the synagogue where where they met each Sabbath to read their scriptures. And then there was this other group. All the non-Jews were collectively known as the Gentiles. And these two groups of people, Jews and Gentiles, had hardly any love for each other or even respect for each other. In fact, Jews in Jesus' day many a times referred to the Gentiles as dogs. Now, mind you, in our current times, dogs are considered, you know, sweet animals, very cute animals. Look at a dog and if it's cute enough, you'll say, oh. But in those times, they were exactly the opposite. They were repulsive creatures. Non-Jews were considered so unspiritual that even being in their presence could make a person ceremonially unclean 
But, but amazingly, again, amazingly, Paul, who'd been brought up as the strictest Jew, had received a very clear commission from the Lord to take the gospel to the Gentiles, and he had done it in several places. And he'd seen this, these Jews and Gentiles united in their newfound faith in Jesus Christ. But, of course, in a place like Ephesus, the majority of the Christians would be Gentiles. And so at this point in his letter, it seems that Paul turns and he addresses specifically to the Gentile Christians. Because like the Jews, they too were dead in their sins. They too would be made alive in Christ. And they too were God's workmanship. But there were other things that was true about them as well. And Paul now starts to remind them of those other things. Now I think I can confidently say that none of us sitting here this morning are Jews. We're all Gentiles. And so what Paul says to these Gentiles is very relevant for us this morning. And so I request that we all keenly listen and understand the passage that God brings to us this morning through the Apostle Paul. Let's look at the starting verses. In verses 11 and 12, Paul is saying to them, remember what you once were. Remember what you once were. You'll see the word remember he uses in verse 11, and then he again uses the word remember in verse 12. You see, not only were they dead in their sins like the Jews, he says in verse 13, they were also far away. They were far away from God, and they were far away from all the privileges that the Jews enjoyed. These Gentiles were far away from God. And now in verse 2, Paul expands on what it means to be far away from God. And he's going to expand that and talk about that from three vantage points, from three specific perspectives. Firstly, he says they were far away because they were separate from Christ. Now, Christ is the word used for Messiah, the promised deliverer. And throughout the history of the Jews, the Jews were looking forward to and they were expecting the coming of this promised Messiah. This was a great encouragement to them and the king, their king was coming. God wasn't, God wasn't going to abandon them and a better day was in store for them. But the Gentiles had no such Christ or Messiah to look forward to. They were separate from Christ. And so not only were they dead in their sins, in their relation to God, they had no hope of things ever being any different even in the future. They were far away and they had no great goal to live for. And so we can say that they were purposeless. The Gentiles were purposeless. Secondly, Paul says, they were far away because they were excluded from citizenship in Israel. And they were foreigners to the covenants of the promise. Now, Israel was a nation of commonwealth under, under God, a people to whom God had bound himself in covenant relationship to be their God. 
and they to be his people. The Jews were covenant people. Gentiles were not. They were excluded from citizenship of that nation and they were foreigners to the covenant. They had no place amongst God's people. And thirdly, Paul says, Paul says they were far away because they were without hope and without God in the world. Like I said earlier, the Jews knew that God, the Lord, was their God. They knew he was with them. They knew that he was concerned about them. But the Gentiles had no hope that God was even interested in them. No hope that things would even turn better, better for them. They were without a God. They were without God. And people longed to pierce that veil in the temple and get some message of hope from the other side of that veil. But there was none. Oh yes, God had revealed to them or God had revealed himself to them in nature like we read in Romans. But they continually suppressed the truth and turned instead to idolatry by worshipping Goddess Diana. They were really hopeless. And Paul says, remember what you once were. Being dead in your sins, but not just that, you were also far away, separate from Christ, which means they were purposeless. You were excluded from God's people, which means you were rootless or without any root. And you were without hope and without God, which means you were utterly hopeless. Now I want us to remind, uh, I want us to remember, weren't we exactly in the same position before we were saved in Christ? Weren't we in the same position before we were saved in Christ? And it is crucial for us to think this way, to remember that we were dead in our sins. We too were far away. We too were separate from Christ. We too were excluded from any kind of citizenship of God's nation, from being part of God's people. And worse than that, and to top it all, many of us have rebelled against God's authority. We were wandering around aimless and we too were without hope and without God. Fair. Yes, the world offers us lots of things and we are hopeful to get a good academic degree. We are hopeful to get a great career. And having a lot of material things. Some of us have even tried to make gods of these things, of possessions and money. But let me remind you this. Imagine a Gentile who was considered a, a dog, but he boasts in having a lot of money. Yes, he might be rich, but his identity as a dog still remained. We were hopeless, and Paul says to them, and unto us, remember what you once were. Remember what it is like to be so hopeless. Remember what it is like to be so purposeless. Remember what it's like to be so rootless. You know, Charles Spurgeon says this, without Christ, if this be the description of some of you, we need not talk to you about the fires of hell. Let this be enough to startle you that you are in such a desperate state as to be without Christ. Oh, 
what terrible evils lie clustering thick within these two words without christ oh what terrible evils lie clustering thick within these two words you might be wondering why is paul going on with this where is he getting to why does he want to remember the past well if they remembered how bad things were earlier then they'd realize how good things have become now and how great is god's grace that can bring bring about such a transformation brothers and sisters i am saying all of this to explain this one piece there is nothing worse than being separated from christ and there is nothing greater than being united to jesus christ there is nothing worse than being separated from christ and there is nothing greater than being united to jesus christ secondly verses 13 to 18 he says recognize what jesus has done recognize what jesus has done now in the first 10 verses that brother benji took last week after telling them that they were dead in their sins paul said in verse 4 and jonathan reminded us today but god made us alive in christ but god made us alive in christ and in this section paul uses the same word but in verse 13 he says but now and he goes on to tell them what god had done look what he says he says but now in christ jesus you who were once far away have been brought near how by the blood of christ the cost of destroying the enmity between man and god was the blood of christ nothing short of that could bring us near him now this language of you know far away and brought here brought near sorry was not uncommon language in the old testament why do i say that because god had promised the jews to be their god and to make them his people we were reminded of moses today moses said what great what great nation is there that has a god so near to it as the lord our god is to us but gentile nations were far away but now but now not only have they been made alive to god but they have been brought near to god and in verse 13 paul says how has this happened notice he uses the phrase in christ jesus and that refers to their conversion to christ their incorporation into christ and he also uses the phrase through the blood of christ and that refers to the historical event of the cross paul is saying god has brought you near by incorporating you into union with christ and through the cross of christ but paul how has the cross of christ brought us near paul explains that in verse 14 he says he himself is our peace who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier the dividing wall of hostility now to help us understand what paul is saying we need to take a trip to jerusalem 
at that time and we need to visit that magnificent temple there in Jerusalem to really understand what this barrier is about. Let me explain it. So imagine this. The temple is constructed on an elevated platform. Okay? And around the main temple building is the court of the priests. East of that court, there's the court of Israel. And further east of that court is the court of the woman of the women. But all these three courts are on the same level. From this level, we go down five steps to another platform, which is called as the world platform. And from there, you go down another 14 steps where you reach a wall beyond which is the outer court of the Gentiles. It's a very spacious court and it surrounds and goes right around the temple of these other courts. And the Gentiles can look up and can view the temple, but they are not allowed to approach it. They are cut off by this surrounding wall, which is around four and a half feet high. And on this wall, at regular intervals, they displayed warning notices in Greek and Latin saying, not that trespassers will be prosecuted, but it says trespassers will be executed. It is that serious. Now that's the barrier. That's the dividing wall keeping out the Gentiles that Paul's referring to here. And he's saying that when Jesus died on the cross, he brought us near. By not only making peace between us and God, but also by destroying that barrier. Breaking down the wall that separates us from the people of God. Now when Paul wrote this letter, that physical wall, that physical barrier still remained standing. In fact, it wasn't actually broken until AD 70 when the Roman military unit entered Jerusalem. But although it remained there materially, spiritually, it had been destroyed in AD 30 when Jesus died on the cross. That is what Paul is talking about. That's the barrier that Paul is talking about. Remember the time of the cross, that great curtain of the temple which, which was barring the Holy of Holies from anyone but the high priest and that too only once a year. That curtain, that veil was torn into when Jesus died on the cross. And in the same way, this barrier, this wall was destroyed as well. Brothers and sisters, Jesus brings unity where there can never be unity. If you can think of a situation where you say these two groups or these two people, they can never be united. That is where Jesus brings unity. Can Indians and Pakistanis be true brothers? Can the Maite and the Kuki Christians be true brothers? If you really know them, you'll say, no, they can't be. But it is only and only by the cross of Jesus that there can be true brothers and sisters. But Paul, how did Jesus do this? How did the death of Jesus on the cross destroy that barrier and make the two people one? And Paul explains that in verse 15 and 16. Please look at your Bibles. Jesus did this in three ways. Jesus did this by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. 
If we think of the ceremonial law, first of all, things like circumcision, things like sacrifices, things like dietary requirements and so on, these commandments and regulations did create a real barrier between the Jews and Gentiles. Jesus abolished this in his flesh. And if you think of the moral law in the Ten Commandments, and we know that we cannot fully obey that law, however hard we try. I don't know if you have tried, but if you try hard enough, you still can't do it. And so it separates us from God and from each other. But Jesus perfectly obeyed that law in his life and in his death on the cross. He bore the consequences of our disobedience. And he took upon himself the curse of the law in order to free us, to set us free. So Jesus did abolish it as a way of salvation. And I want to remind us, acceptance with God is now not by obeying the ceremonial law or by obeying the moral law, but it is now through faith in Christ Jesus alone. Be Jew or be Gentile. So Jesus' death destroyed the barrier by abolishing both the regulations of the ceremonial law and the condemnation of the moral law. Secondly, Jesus' death destroyed the barrier by creating one new man out of the two. Once the law was abolished, there was nothing to keep the two parts of humanity, Jews and Gentiles, apart. So Christ brought them together by an act of creation. Literally, he created the two into one new man, so making peace. And who is this one new man? That's right. This New man is the Christian community. The community of believers viewed corporately as a new human race. United by Jesus himself. It was created when Jesus abolished the law on the cross. And which actually comes into existence and grows by personal union with Christ. And in fact in other places Paul expands on this. He tells us that Jesus' unity does more than span the Jew and Gentile divide. It even does away with sexual and social distinctions. And Paul speaks in Galatians that there neither being Jews or Greeks, slave or free, male or female, you are all one in Christ. Not that human differentiations are removed, but inequalities are abolished. The differentiations would surely remain. But the inequality, we are all the same in the eyes of God. And thirdly, Jesus' death destroyed the barrier by reconciling Jews and Gentiles to God. The word reconciliation means bring together again. Bring together back again. After the abolition of the law that we, that we saw earlier and the creation of this new human race, comes the reconciliation of both parts of humanity to God. And this is why, or this is by which, he put to death their enmity. And he's talking not about a single enmity, but he's talking about a twofold enmity between Jews and Gentiles and between sinners and God. And through the cross, both enmities have been brought to an end. 
Christ bore our sin and judgment and God turned away his wrath. And so Christ put to death the enmity. So that's how the death of Jesus on the cross has destroyed the barrier that divided us. But his death, Jesus, by his death, Jesus has abolished the law that was separating man from God and Jews from Gentiles and he's created a new single humanity out of its earlier divisions and he's reconciled this new united humanity to God having killed having killed through the cross all the enmity between us that is why we truly can be brothers and sisters because there is actually no enmity God says there is no enmity between us be it whoever it is God says I've broken that down if you believe in the cross you're not enemies but your brothers and sisters. So that, that's what Jesus did to bring us near. He sent, that's what God did to bring us near. He sent his son to the cross to destroy the, divo- the dividing wall and brings into being this new humanity. The second thing that God did to bring us near was to incorporate us into union with Christ. It says, now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near. And that has come about through the preaching of peace. Look in verse 17. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, that are the Gentiles, and, pre- and peace to you who were near, who are the Jews. Now, Paul doesn't spell out over here, but we know from other texts in the New Testament that what Christ has done on the cross, the way that is made real for us and the way that we are incorporated into Christ is by the Holy Spirit which is taking this preached word and giving birth to saving faith in us. He takes the preached word and gives birth to saving faith in us. Faith comes by hearing the word of Christ. That's how faith comes into being. And the evidence that that's happened that we are in Christ is in verse 18. We both Jews and Gentiles have access to the Father by one spirit. You know, Tim Keller once said this. He said, the only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is the child of the king. That's the only person who can dare to wake up the king at 3 a.m. We have that kind of access. I don't know if you realize that we have that kind of access. But the reason why we can wake up at 3 a.m. and go to him is because we have that kind of access. So Paul is saying, recognize what the Lord has done. He's brought you near through Christ's death on the cross and he's brought you into Christ. Jesus' death has destroyed the barriers and created a new humanity. And you are now in Christ through the preaching of that word. Isn't that absolutely the best thing? I mean, what more could the Lord have done for us? What more could he do? What more would you say that, Lord, only if you do this thing too, then I'll believe. Thirdly, Paul goes on to say, recognize what you have become. Recognize what you have become. Verse 19 to 22. In the first section that Brother Benji covered last week, if you remember verse 10, Paul says, you are God's workmanship. You are God's work of art. 
Marus, you are God's work of art. Joash, you are God's work of art. I'm saying that because we don't say that to ourselves enough. If we are in Christ, we are God's work of art. Now here in this verse, he says, consequently, verse 19, consequently, as a result of what Jesus has done, he says, your status has changed dramatically. You now belong to a very new way. In a way you never did before. You have come home. And he expands on what? On, he expands on that by saying they have become part of the church and he gives them three pictures of what that really means. What does it mean to be part of a church? First, you belong. And he wants them to realize that they have become part of God's kingdom. You are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people. Many of us have lived many years or maybe decades in the Gulf and other regions. I don't know what it means to be a foreigner in a different land. But a Gentile being a foreigner to God is something I can remember that I can think of being the most hopeless thing. He's talking about a citizenship of God's kingdom. He's not thinking about a territorial kingdom. He's not even thinking of a spiritual structure. God's kingdom is God himself ruling his people and giving them all the privileges which his rule implies. And to this God-ruled community, Jews and Gentiles belong now on equal terms. And remember, Paul is writing this at the highest point of the Roman Empire, at the peak of the Roman Empire. But he sees another kingdom more beautiful, more splendid, more enduring than any earthly kingdom. And he rejoices in the citizenship of this kingdom even more than his own Roman citizenship. Citizens of this kingdom are free and secure, no longer without root, but stable and secure we are part of God's own kingdom. Secondly, he wants them to realize that they have become part of God's family now. Verse 19, the last part, it says, members of God's household. See, becoming part of a kingdom is one thing, but becoming part of God's family is completely another thing. I was thinking of an, of an analogy to explain this. And this is not... The, a great analogy, but just to give you a reference, say if if some of you move to the U.S., maybe after I don't know whatever number of years you will get a citizenship of the U.S., so you're part of the kingdom. But what if the president of the United States tells you that now you are also part of my family? All the things that belong to me belong to you. That's altogether a different thing. How much more when God says that you're not only part of my kingdom, but you're part of my family? You're the one who can wake me up at 3 a.m. He just mentioned in the previous verse about having access to the Father. And earlier in chapter 1, Paul had spelled out some of the blessings of being adopted into God's family. Here's something really interesting. Brothers and sisters, or the word brethren, is the most common word for Christians in the Testament, in the New Testament. Not talking about the denomination brethren, but I'm talking about the word brethren 
is the most common word for Christians in the New, New Testament. We have become brothers and sisters in Christ. And that expresses, that expression is a close relationship of affection and care and support. Brotherly love should be the characteristic of God's new society. Paul is saying, you belong to his family if you are in Christ. And then Paul wants them to realize that they have also become part of God's temple. So you see, there's an zooming in that's happened, part of God's kingdom and family. And now he's saying you're going to be part of God's king, temple. Let's realize what, let's understand what that is. Verse 20 to 22, the temple there in the Jerusalem, in Jerusalem had been the focal point of Israel's history for nearly a thousand years when this is being written. But now there's a new people, not just another nation, but a humanity worldwide. And so a geographically located building would not be apt or appropriate because this new community was not geographically located anymore. The focus of unity is now the church. This company of people who believe in God and belong to Jesus. Who believe in God and belong to Jesus. Look at what he says about the temple. He speaks about the foundations of apostles and priests. Now, this is not something that can be tampered with or modified with or, or you know, added or subtracted. And the cornerstone, that stone which is the stone which is placed at the extreme corner of a building to bind all the other stones in the building together, that cornerstone is now Christ Jesus himself. He's the one that binds the church. He's the one that holds the growing temple together as a unity. The individual stones are you and me, are the individual church members. And it says, in him, in Christ, you too are being built together. You too there refers to the Gentile believers because the Jews already thought that they were that way. But now he says, you too are being built together. They had been forbidden to enter the Jerusalem temple, but now they are not only admitted to the Jerusalem temple or not admitted to this newfound faith, but they are integral and a constituent part of it. They are integral to this newfound temple. <clears throat> what is the purpose of this temple? Like the old temple used to be a dwelling place of God, now this new temple is where God dwells. God dwells in his people individually and God dwells in his people corporately as a church. And this is where God makes his home. Not a building. God's not tied. God's not tied to holy buildings, but to holy people. And he lives in them individually and he lives in them as a community. John Stott says, the church lies at the very center of the eternal purposes of God. The church is what is God using to fulfill his eternal purposes. It is not a parachurch ministry. It is not anything. It's not each of you just acting on your own, but it is the church that the what that what the Lord is using to fulfill his eternal purposes. My my final reflection and charge on this point, brothers and sisters, is this. Church, let's elevate our understanding 
of the church to align ourselves to such a passage. If we have an understanding of the church that is not in line with this, let's elevate that understanding of the church to align with such a passage. Christ wants to create a people for himself, not isolated individuals who believe in him, but a community of people for himself. Paul wants them to realize that they have become part of this new temple, this community in which God lives by his spirit. Here's where they belong now. Now, if you can imagine Paul dictating this letter and there in his mind, he can see Ephesus. He can see that magnificent marble temple of Artemis Diana, one of the seven wonders of that world. There it is with its great statue of the goddess. And in his mind, there in Jerusalem, he can also see the Jewish temple built by Herod the Great. And this one barricading itself against the Gentiles and against God. So two temples, one pagan and one Jewish, each designed as a divine dwelling place, but both empty of the living God. But now there's this new temple, the dwelling which God lives by his spirit. His new society, his redeemed people scattered around the world. They are his home on earth. And that temple rises together to become a holy temple in the Lord. It is going to be God's home in heaven. And on that day, a voice from the throne will declare, Behold, the dwelling of God is with man. Behold, the dwelling of God is now with man. Gentile Christians, who we are, he's saying, realize what you have become. You're part of God's kingdom and the kingdom in which God rules, part of the family which God loves, part of the temple in which God lives. That's where you belong. This is your home. Isn't that wonderful? And all that's true for us, despite that I was far away from God, despite that we were far away from God, purposeless, rootless, hopeless. Christ died for us to bring us near him. He's removed all the barriers. He's created a new humanity. He's reconciled us to others and to God, and he's brought us home, which is where we really belong now. Far away, but brought near and brought home. It's great to be a Christian, you know. It's great to be a believer. It's the best thing ever. And as I close, I want to ask you this morning, are you far away from God? Are you purposeless, rootless, hopeless? You might be even a regular church attender, or maybe this is the first time you're coming to the church. But are you far away from God? Please listen to me. Jesus died on the cross. Jesus, the son of God, died on a cross and he died for you. He died to bring you near. He died to destroy all the barriers that are keeping you out. And he died to bring you back to himself and to other Christians. He died in order to bring you into Christ as you put your trust in him. And you know when that happens you too become part of God's kingdom. You too become part of, part, part of God's family, part of God's temple, 
but you need to trust in him to do that you need to admit that you're far away and sometimes that is the toughest thing to do to admit that you're far away you need to believe that jesus on the cross did all that for you and you need to ask him to bring you into christ and then you just need to enter into these wonderful privileges of belonging and walk in the faith if you are not so sorry if you are a believer in christ this morning let me ask you do you walk in the newness of this life in christ do you live like an alien or a stranger or someone far off from god's family or do you live as someone who has access to this god who is now your father are you casting your anxieties on him because he cares for you and are you using the power of the holy spirit to fight your idols to fight temptations are you living in the light in the joy in the hope of this gospel brothers and sisters we are we are brought into this family and i don't think we realize how great a family this is and i don't think we realize how great a god this is but i pray i pray that the lord will teach us through this passage and through ephesians as we do the book that we will understand the immeasurable riches of his grace towards us let's pray our father we realize that we were dead but now we are alive we are real- we realize that we were not only dead we were separated we were disobedient we were depraved we were doomed we were purposeless we were rootless we were hopeless but now if we are in christ we have become part of your kingdom we are part of your family and we are part of your temple oh father remind us of these truths and let us live in this family as one who belongs to this great family this great faith and if any of us sitting here this morning do not know you have mercy upon them oh lord open the eyes of the unbelievers and open the eyes of the believers and this morning may you be praised and may your great work be exalted among your saints thank you for hearing us thank you for this opportunity to come and worship you and to partake of the emblem that reminds us of what got us this salvation thank you for jesus death and his resurrection go before us this week and let our eyes be fixed on you and this we pray in christ's name amen